When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It's going to take a little bit of getting used to, the sort of new arrangement of where you're seated. And um, I'm sure in a few weeks it will be, feel like it's always been that way. I just love St. John's recollection of this vision that God gave him. It's so vivid and so powerful. And I want to be clear, um, it's not just some dream or some sort of hallucination type vision. God actually parted, as it were, the veil of the visible world so that John could see into the invisible world that we know is real, right? God is real. He's invisible but real. And John gets given this privilege to see that reality, what's usually hidden from sight. John gets to see, just in the same way that um, Elijah in the Old Testament was uh, able to see the angelic warriors fighting for Israel. Or as we read this week um, in the daily office, you know, Balaam gets to see the angel of the Lord that's standing in his way. There's invisible things which we can't see with our eyes unless God grants us the special privilege to be able to see them. And that's what happens with John. He falls down at Jesus' feet. Although the details are so vivid, right? It's not just falls down. He falls down at his feet. And Jesus sets a hand on him, but not any hand, his right hand. Right? This, it, it, just like John's gospel, there's these sort of notes of first-person testimony where John's just describing what he got to see and experience. He gets to hear those amazing, unforgettable words of comfort, of God's control over what's happening. I am the first and the last. So what I want to examine this morning is actually a, a contrast. The difference between the two different appearances of Jesus that we heard in today's lessons, what St. Thomas saw in the upper room, contrasted with what St. John saw on the island of Patmos. It's the same Jesus that they see, but it looks very different, right? Very different what Thomas beheld versus what John beheld. So let me start with Thomas. Um, so as the gospel narrated, the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples on Easter, Thomas wasn't there. But it's the next Sunday, the first day of the week, the next Sunday, when Thomas is there, Jesus shows up again. And that's why this is always the gospel for the second Sunday after Easter, because we're remembering the second appearance to the eleven gathered in the upper room. Thomas, um, I think really, in God's mysterious uh, working out of these things, He's speaking out of a worldview that's very familiar to us, right? Unless I see it and touch it, I won't believe. And what I want to point out is this isn't just sort of rampant unbelief. Thomas doesn't say, well, I just won't believe, period. And he's not asking for some miracles or money. He just wants some verification that the testimony that he hopes to be true is true. It's not all doubt. There's faith in the midst there, right? He says, unless I see that, I won't believe. But he has this sort of... Um, uh, need to verify it for himself that we experience right in so many things i want to know with my own experience that these things are true jesus shows up and he invites thomas to examine the wounds i think because of that famous renaissance painting can you picture it by caravaggio where thomas is sort of poking jesus's side we always think that thomas really did actually touch his side the gospel account is silent on that fact 
Right? It actually seems to be the case that Jesus says, okay, Thomas, you can touch. But it doesn't say that Thomas then actually touched his side. I think the presence of Jesus was enough for him to be convinced. What we see so much in, uh, when we sort of interpret all of these resurrection appearances, first on Easter morning, to the women at the tomb, to the apostles in the upper room, to Thomas, and then in Galilee, right, all these appearances. What it seems to be the case that, that Jesus is doing is he's inviting his disciples. He's actually sort of weaning them off of sense, right? Like they're so used to seeing Jesus with their eyes and this transition is happening because Jesus is going to ascend into heaven to the right hand of the Father. Um, and Jesus, he's actually inviting them to, I'm sorry, I think the smells from the pillows. I think I need to wash them. <laughs> sorry for the, they got a bit of dust in them. I'm sorry for all the coughing. Next week it'll be better. Um, Jesus is actually inviting them. They're so used to looking at him with their eyes and he's wanting to say, come to know that I'm still here even if you can't see me, living in his resurrected existence. That's why he's showing themself, himself to them uh, in these ways. I think what I want to point out as a side note, it's not an accident that Jesus showed up on a Sunday, right? That we should be constantly aware of the presence of the Lord but especially on a Sunday, right? It's on a Sunday that he shows up again. I can only imagine that the very next Sunday, as it rolled around, that the disciples would have been looking at every sort of creak in the wood or you know, hinge of a door expecting to see Jesus again. And although they wouldn't see him with their eyes again, to come to expect his presence through the ministry of word and sacrament that they continued. I saw, how many of you saw that movie a few years ago, The Son of God, when it came out? It was off of the TV, the TV series, The Bible. Um, the movie took a few creative liberties, but I thought it was an excellent portrayal of Jesus. And especially at the end when St. Peter takes bread and sort of shows in that first celebration of communion, those early celebrations, that they really were aware that Jesus was with them in that meal. It's a great, a great movie if you haven't seen it. I've completely lost where I am. <laughs> um, oh, what I want to point out is that Thomas has some doubt in his life, right? That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. But Jesus still condescends to show himself to Thomas, right? Actually embodying the teaching we'd see in 1 Timothy, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. It's not like Thomas has doubts and Jesus is like, well, now you're out in the cold, right? Jesus comes and still shows himself to Doubting Thomas. It's a great comfort. And Thomas gets to see Christ exactly as he asked, that he would get to see the wounds. But what I want to point out is that when Christ appears in the upper room, he's actually veiling his glory. It's sort of like those movies where a king dresses up like a peasant to kind of blend into some situation. When Jesus shows up in the upper room, he is veiling the glory that is his. The name, he's received the name that's above every other name, right? He's conquered death and Hades. And yet he appears kind of like a guy who they have seemed to have some difficulty recognizing, just like on the road to Emmaus. But he still shows them the wounds. He, he's coming down to what they are looking for and what they understand. Um, partly this is because Jesus, I, wanted, I think, wanted to show with perfect clarity that the same Lord who was crucified is the same one who is risen. It's the same body. Also, his full glory doesn't seem to be manifest till the ascension, which we can think of as like his enthronement, which we'll celebrate in six weeks' time. But I also think it's partly because Thomas had this sort of hesitating, conditional faith, right? He came to, to God with caveats, and God showed himself to him mercifully. 
Thanks be to God. But it's different than what we see with St. John, right? St. John, it records in the gospel, he sees the empty tomb. He doesn't even see Jesus risen. And it says he understood and believed. Right? He's called the beloved disciple because he was sort of especially beloved by Jesus and himself showed forth such love for Jesus. The only one who stayed uh, of, the, of, the, of the male disciples, the only one who stayed right with him close to the, to the very end. So I think that difference in how they're approaching God is a part of why John gets granted this gift of the extraordinary vision on Patmos. So the same John that was in the upper room, 50 years later, he's exiled because the Romans don't like the fact he won't worship the Roman gods. And he gets this vision on, on what day? Sunday, right? The first day of the week. Again, not a coincidence. He says he's in the spirit, he's praying, he's contemplating God. And in the same way, there's a similarity but a difference. In the upper room, Jesus, as it were, stepped down from heaven to show himself to the apostles. John on Patmos gets swept up into heaven, like St. Paul, swept up into the third heaven. And he gets to see Christ in all his kingly glory. Not, not the king dressed up as a peasant, but the king in all his glory. Um, as ever since I have sort of been reflecting on this lesson in preparation for this, uh, for this Sunday, I just can't get this fearsome, awesome picture out of my head. A shock of white hair. And you can see John sort of stammering for description. Why does wool? No, scratch that. Why does snow? You know? Um, his eyes were like flames of fire and his face is glowing like the sun. Have you ever looked at the sun? I heard that Isaac Newton went blind because he just loved looking at the sun, um, which is crazy. <laughs> but look at the sun for a second. It's too bright to look at, right? That's the face of Christ, a human face, but brighter than the sun. His feet are like glowing bronze. His voice sounds like a roaring waterfall. Picture, if you, when you've heard a waterfall, a voice that sounds like that. He's got stars in his hand, and it looks like a sword is coming out of his mouth, right? This is an awesome picture of Jesus. And I think it's one, if it doesn't sound kind of terrifying to you, you just don't have a good imagination this morning. Because <laughs> St. John felt catatonic, right? It takes a lot to go catatonic before something. <laughs> um, that's what happened when he saw this vision of Christ in his glory, the king without his disguise. Um, and I think, it, I think it's good for us to really allow this image to sink in this morning because it's part of our human frailty that we try and uh, tame our vision of God so that we can try and manage our religion rather than be managed by the boss, right? The we tend to sort of dial down our picture of Jesus, right? We take what is true of him, that he's kind and meek and lowly of heart, and we sort of notch that down to just kind of a nice guy. Like some of the religious art from the Victorian era, it's like, well, it kind of looks like Jesus. But when we supplement this with the vision that John gets given, a vision that's given for the whole church, right? The angel said, write this stuff down so that we could be built up by it. That when we picture Christ, not just in his weakness on the cross, not just in the, the shape of his earthly ministry, but with a face like a sun, right, and, and eyes like fire, I think it adds um, a rightful gravity to the Christian life that we claim and that we live into, that when we say, God help me, we're not talking about some sort of cheerleader on the side, right? We're talking about Christ 
helps me, the one with the eyes like fire and hair like white, white snow. He fed me with his own divine life. He spoke to me through the Bible when I was listening to it or reading it. That when I prayed for help, that is the Christ that came to my help, right? We've actually been invited into this sort of terrifying, divine, amazing thing, and we, we tone it down too much. And that's what I love that this revelation reading is in our lectionary, that we can remember to not tone it down, to tone it back up rightfully. That this is a glorious king that we serve, who comes to help us on a minute-by-minute -minute basis through his Holy Spirit, who comes to strengthen us and guide us and, and bring him to himself, bring us, sorry, bring us to himself, bring us to his Father. We get invited by the great king. I think if we just bring this picture into our imaginations and ask the Spirit to impress it on our hearts, it'd be very hard to take the things of the Christian life light, lightly. It'd be hard to take the word lightly, hard to take sacraments lightly, that we would, in fact, honor him rightly, that he holds the keys to death and hell, that he is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why we sang that hymn this morning, right? Crown him with many crowns. All praise to Jesus Christ, our great and risen King. Amen.